Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to be joined by a celebrated filmmaker, editor, and producer whose sexy and surreal feature, Pornography, a Thriller, garnered much attention on its festival run for its blend of tantalizing eroticism and art house prestige. As an editor, he brought his skills to the director's cut of the much-loved Ryan Philippi starring 54, helping a whole new generation of viewers discover the film in the process. And as a lifelong fan of one of horror's most hotly debated sequels, he's recently been at work on a documentary titled Heretics, Brushed by the Wings of Exorcist II, hoping to shine a light on the innovative and divisive follow-up to Friedkin's classic. Please welcome to the show, writer, director, producer, and so much more, David Kittredge. Michael, thank you for having me. It's glad to be here. Or I'm um, glad to be here. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to have you here, Dave. Uh, it's good to see you and hear you. And, uh, you know, just here we are uh, in, in a, a weird moment in time, but we're still able to come together across the airwaves. Yeah, just, I mean, just before we started recording, I actually asked you, I was just like, okay, so we're in quarantine. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 mid-April in Los Angeles. We seem to have, we have dodged the bullet in Los Angeles of the worst projections because we shut down reasonably early i think for at least compared to new york and a lot of other places so i mean we i mean that's awesome but yeah we're we're in this place where it's like okay what happens i mean you know we're we're probably going to be here through may uh or at least through a, a good chunk of may at the very least probably through may so we're all kind of asking ourselves like what now and catching up on our movie watching i know i am same here <laughs> you know honestly it's wild because uh you know we, we did talk before we went on air, like, how much do we want to mention the quarantine? But part of Dead for Filth has always been sort of preserving the history of both the guests and, and their journeys. But, you know, this is this is history. We're, we're on the air while we are in an unprecedented moment in time. We are stuck inside. You and I live across town from each other. Yeah. It, it would have taken us 15 minutes to get together in person. But oh, yeah. We literally, by government decree, cannot. So it's, it's wild. <laughs> It's yeah. I wonder sometimes, like, like, are we gonna look back on this and be like, what, what were we feeling? What were we thinking during this process? I feel like I should just be like taking a lot more pictures and 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 like, you know, if I if I happen to go to a Starbucks drive-through, like, because we do that like every like two or three times a week just to like get out, right? You know, and just go through the Starbucks drive-through, stay in our cars, and we do it all the way we're supposed to. But it's like, you know, especially seeing Los Angeles, because I live in Koreatown, which is one of the more hopping areas of L.A. And it's like to see this place at night, like utterly desolate, like something out of Night of the Comet. It's like really it's it's creepy. It's endearing. I'm very aware that I will never see L.A. like this again. I hope I will never see L.A. like this again. Certainly, I don't I, no one would want this to happen again at least anytime soon. So, but it's, it's definitely, you know, you wonder why, like there aren't a bunch of independent filmmakers running around getting B roll right now. Well, because they probably shouldn't be, but no, well, uh, they should not. I agree. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not advocating this, but you know, for sure. You know, what's interesting though, is that, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned the desolation and I have a friend who lives in Manchester and he was asking me, he's like, what, what's it like in LA? I said, well, the first thing you notice living here even though it's such a cliche to talk about LA traffic is our lack of it. Now, if you go out yeah. for a walk or if you have to do a grocery store, the streets are, like you said, it's night of the comet. It's empty. It's strange. And that, yeah. that, that to me is, is really kind of the indicator um, that the, the needle has been rocked. And I think that you brought up a good point, like looking back on this, um, what will we think and how will we perceive this moment? For me, I keep thinking about how all, 
all of us kind of keep talking about like come May or June when we get to leave our houses, going back to life the way it was. And I don't think we can. I think there's sort of a before this and after this. I think there will be a consideration uh, for life, like, you know, how we approach things a little differently. I, I completely agree. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that, you know, going into this and it started, you know, kind of politically and culturally, you know, under George W. Bush and has kind of continued here. It's like there's there's a schism between, um, you know, people who kind of want to take into consideration stuff like the environment and, you know, social structures and, uh, you know, uh, um, a safety net and being compassionate, being being logical, like science and the people who uh, I'll be very nice and say are more emotionally and fear driven. Um, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not, you know, you know, I do know I do know conservative people who I feel are moral and ethical. Um it's just that they seem to be drowned out by a lot of histrionics and awfulness. And I, I see this as being a real litmus test. I mean, you're looking at, you know, the way that these states have viewed it and kind of taken action and the way that people have viewed it and taken action and different populations. Um, I, I, th- I, you know, I don't I hope things change for the better. And I just feel like this if anything, it it really shows the schism even more. It's like, because I feel like we're at this inflection point in, in human history, in our species, in our planet, where we either have to grow up or we're in for a world of pain. And it might be a little bit of both. I mean, we don't know, but it's like, you know, it's almost like our puberty. Like, we really have to, you know, we, we, we have the power to really mess ourselves up and destroy ourselves. And, you know, we have to grow up a little bit and understand you know, if for lack of a better thing, our place in this world, right? And how what, it works best, and what's more, uh, what's more horror movie than the, uh, looking at our cultural adulthood and and the fact that we are having to grow up, which oh, I God, think, yes. I, you know, I think from uh, from uh, this this talk about the state of things is a good segue to to lead into the start of the show, uh, because you know we we talked about how this is a little night of the comet here in L.A. We talked about kind of the, the grim reality of having to, to grow up. And that leads us right in. Here we are. We're here to talk about horror. So why don't we do that? Yeah. Uh, with that in mind, why don't I just start the show with the same first question I ask every guest? And it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think audiences are drawn to it? But why horror? Oh, you know, <clears throat> it's so funny. I knew you were going to ask this question. I've heard the podcast. I knew this was coming. And I had like about three different answers. And now they've all gone out of my head. But what I think is... There, I, I, I just like to – horror in general is different than horror movies. Um, and I think that horror in general is something that I like. But horror movies and cinema itself is something that's very dear to me. And there's a very, very specific reason why. I think that if you look at the different artistic mediums uh, or media um, – you you look at photography or dance or music or 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 writing or or spoken word or performance or anything. Um, cinema is and was the first medium, artistic medium, that really combined almost all of it into one thing, and then added another craft on top of it, which is editorial. And these are ephemeral experiences. Watching cinema is an ephemeral experience. It's a repeatable experience, though. You can repeat it. 
Uh, so it's not like theater, where it's kind of there and then it's gone. But the, the magic of, of cinema is you can you can kind of fine-tune this experience that you can then run over and over again. And, and it can hit you in different ways and it can contain different things depending on how you view it and and stuff. And horror as a genre is one of the things that cinema does better than any other medium. Because, no, I mean... A theater can be scary, but nobody's going to react to theater the way that first-run audiences reacted to The Exorcist. You know, books can be scary, but, you know, watching The Shining is a very, it's a completely different visceral experience than, than reading it. And I love the book, but the movie changed my damn life. Um, I never, like, I saw that when I was reasonably young, and I never knew, and it wasn't even the first horror movie I saw, and it wasn't even the first scary movie I saw, but, but I never knew you could do that stuff. Like, like he pulled off stuff in that movie that I was like, I didn't even know that was, you, it was allowed, you know, like 20 frame cuts to the creepy sisters. I mean, that freaked me out for years, like just that cut. And I'm like, how like, he used these edits, like blunt instruments to, and it just like wrecked me. And then as I grew older, that movie, especially like, I didn't know that you could make a movie that was not really about what the movie purported to be about. Because The Shining purports to be about a ha like a haunted house, like basically it's a haunted hotel. It's not about a haunted hotel. This is a movie about like, you know, it, it, you know toxic masculinity and domestic violence. To me, I mean that's what it is to me, um, and and I think that one of the that one of the reasons that it resonates, and and certainly I'm actually a fan of my friend Rodney Asher's movie Room Two Three Seven, which I thought was just genius and 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 hilarious and funny and really about what people bring to it more than the experiences that they describe um the shining and kubrick's work in particular it's all about like what you're not what he's not actually talking about it's all subtext i mean and it's amazing and um i think that horror debatably more than almost any genre can do subtext and can do these crypto messages better and more effectively than anything. I mean, you, you know, horror, it's almost like pornography in a way because it goes past your your logic functions and it goes directly into the lizard brain, directly into this this fight or flight, like, anxiety thing. And by, by telling these stories to that, it can profoundly affect you. It's a very powerful genre. I'm curious, too, because uh, while you were talking, you had mentioned, you know, the difference between reading the book and seeing a movie and how, you know, obviously a book can hit you in a certain way, but a movie hits you in another. And, and yes, we can watch movies alone, but I did clue into the audience reaction of the first time they saw The Exorcist. Is, is the communal experience of watching a horror movie also important to you and important to you think, to, do you think to that power that the horror movie has in the world? Because it's something that we all share. A book is a very isolated experience. Absolutely. I, you know, and, and theater shares that, actually. Like, in fact, I think, I mean, in a way, if you're talking about the, the, the communal experience, theater is almost better mm -hmm. at this because it is one shot only. You're watching it. The actors are up there. You're all in this big auditorium and you all have made the decision to believe whatever these actors are doing, even though it is inherently this artificial thing. Movies, by, by nature of the fact that they're just thrown up there on the screen, they tend to literalize everything. It's much, much harder to give kind of a, a dreamy kind of unreal thing mm -hmm. to a movie because 
by dint of the fact that you're just watching it on this gigantic screen, it it tends to literalize it. Your brain tends to want to make this, okay, this is real. And it takes a lot of artistry, I think, to make a movie that 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 can be simultaneously real and unreal, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I love Exorcist 2. And and in, for whatever reason, The Shining and, and a lot, you know, all the other movies that I, I tend to love. I mean, I'm certainly, you know, I mean, certainly there are lots of movies that are quote unquote realistic that I think are wonderful and amazing. I mean, you can even look at William Friedkin's French Connection, which was done in this gritty kind of handheld Ultra, like, quote unquote ultra realistic style, but you know, you and I both know because we, you know, we've made movies. It's like this, it, it's all artifice. I mean, it's it, it's almost, almost no movie, almost no narrative movie, and certainly a lot, very few documentaries either, um, don't have an enormous element of artifice and and setting up things and kind of like deciding what to show and when. Right. Um, but you know, it's that it's that dreamlike quality. It's like you know that that I find extraordinarily powerful and, and, you know, what is life if not dealing with your own fears in, in a large extent, extent, I mean, that's how we grow. That's how we learn. That's how we like, you know, evolve. And it's like horror movies and horror, you know, horror in general goes right up to those fears. Like, you know, and, and we deal with them in this, you know, quote unquote safe way because we're just seeing it on a screen. We're not being attacked. You know, we're not being uh, whatever. Um, so it's 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 kind of a way to, you know, examine and bring up from the depths of our subconscious or unconscious things that may be affecting us that we don't even know about. Well, and you had mentioned the power of subtext that exists within horror. And obviously that's something we talk a lot about in the show, the layers that horror allows and how sometimes horror... Uh, provides a lens to look at things that maybe the mainstream otherwise does not want to address. I mean, you talk about issues of toxic masculinity existing in Kubrick's The Shining long before that was even a cultural discussion. Like, we all knew it was a thing, but the phrase toxic masculinity is more of a a newer phrase in terms of... But, like, horror has always been at the forefront of kind of looking at the problems that we've had. And then of course, within context of the show, when we're talking about queer identity as it meets with horror, do you think that part of the draw to horror for queer people is that subtext? Oh God. Yes. I think that, I mean, I think that, and I'm going to be very general here because I I, I know there are exceptions, but for most gay people, we had to go through a bit to get to where we are. We had to go through, you know, for for lack of a better word, like our childhood and adolescence, generally speaking, most of us were not out. I mean, certainly not not people my age. Um, you know, I think the the, <laughs> the kids these days um, they might <laughs> have a better they might have a better time of it. But you know, but even then, it's like you know, we by the f- and I can only I, I only want to speak for gay men right now because I I, I don't know enough. I mean, but I th- I think that it would probably be you know, close to lesbians too, with regard to this, it's like we, we went, we're taught a lot of stuff about what men and women are supposed to want and when, what men and women are supposed to be when we're growing up. And at some point we realize just by looking in the mirror and knowing who we are and feeling how we feel that it's bullshit. Like we are proof that what they say we're supposed to want and be is bullshit. And after we get over our part of like thinking that we're the problem, once we actually believe like, oh wait, we're not the problem, all their bullshit is the problem, 
that is like a golden ticket because once we're, I mean, it's very hard. We have to go through it. But once we go through it and we, we actually like have the tools to question what society or our parents or whomever says we're supposed to be because obviously we don't fit because we want, you know, <laughs> we want boys or, you know, girls want girls, um, you know, then we can actually examine things that we're afraid of. Like then then it's like, oh, wait, that didn't destroy me. Right. What else am I afraid of? How else can I can I evolve and grow? And and you know, I'm very grateful that I'm gay. Like extraordinarily and inordinately grateful. And you know, when I was certainly when I was a kid and when I was a teenager, I would have never thought that I would ever say those words, but um I could I could barely acknowledge to myself that I like other boys in my class, you know, it but you know, I look at it now and I look at how it has helped me to question all of the idiot preconceived bullshit notions that in no way were uh, accurate um, and become the person that I wanted to be and the person that I feel like I really am. And I feel like, you know, if there is a point to life, that's got to be one of the big ones. Um, That and empathy. Yeah, you you raise a really interesting point because I hear this this conversation a lot when people are trying to uh, sell their their parents on the idea that it's not a choice, which of course I don't believe it is. But like I've heard this argument in, in years past where people will say, "Well, if it was a choice, why would I choose to make my life more difficult?" And I remember that argument being kind of put forward yeah. in, the, in the late '90s, early thousands, and it's it's sort of like I. I remember really kind of having a problem with that because it's basically there's still such internalized homophobia with that statement. The idea like, well, I would never choose this life. But I think the older you get and the more you lived in it, you are. It's what you say. I, I like being gay. And, because, and, and part of it is also due to the fact that I think when you exist in a marginalized portion of society, you see things and are introduced to things and people that you otherwise would n- maybe never come across and you witness beauty that the rest of the world doesn't even know exists yeah. and you witness art that the rest of the world doesn't even know exists. And yes, maybe you had to walk through the fire a bit to get there, but it's like, n- no, I-, I didn't choose to be gay, but like now that I've walked this life and seen the things that I have and know the things that I know, if as an adult, if someone asked me, would you choose this? The answer is unequivocally, yes, I would, because this is so much who I am to to make that, you know, to to trivialize that down to the idea that like, oh, it was hard. Yeah, it was. But yeah. look at all the things that we learned and became and grew from because of it. And not, and not to sound like, you know, that guy, but it's like what in life, you know, that's worth it isn't hard. It's like I don't know a lot of them. <laughs> it's like. Uh, you know, I I think there's a lot of wisdom in saying you have to go through stuff to get to the other side to, like, be the person that you are or, you know, at least learn that strength. I mean, I you know, I, I'm a big believer in therapy because I've, you know, I, like a lot of people I know, have dealt with anxiety and depression my whole life. And it's only in the last, I think, I don't know, 10 years <clears throat> that I've really uh, got the tools um to really deal with it effectively, like, and, and kind of like accept that, okay, you know, there are some times when I'm just extremely anxious and it's okay. And there's sometimes when I'm depressed and I just barely can get out of bed. And you know what? That's okay. And, and, you know, I've, I've learned, you know, the tricks that, that, you know, I, I don't know if they work for everybody. They work for me. It's like, you know, 
there are times I call it the hamster wheel. Like when you're very depressed, I call it the hamster wheel. It's like if you put any energy into it, trying to figure it out or trying to work the depression or trying to, it just eats it up and gets bigger. And the only way around it is to literally step out of the hamster wheel, like either take a moment and like take a nap or take like just, you know, exercise is very good. I mean, but you literally have to soft reset your brain. Um, so you just stop going in that circle. Um, and uh, I did have a point to this. And then I started talking about <laughs> depression. What was my, what was my point? <laughs> it, I, I, I'm, I'm an advocate. I'm an advocate. Actually, I'm an advocate very much for queers talking about mental health because I feel like there's an enormous stigma, um, especially even with queer artists who like all of which I just don't, I virtually know no queer artists that don't deal with anxiety and depression. So it's like, I feel like it's, we, you know, I would wish that more of us talked about it, um, but it's been an enormous, um, it's been an enormous part of the last, you know, my life and certainly the last 10 years in, in kind of getting my shit together and, and realizing that, you know, this is who I am and it's okay. Um, but I think that, I mean, we're, we were, I think we were talking about just like, you know, things being hard and, and being worth it. I think that in order to be, oh, I know what I was talking about. Basically, one of the things that I talked about with my therapist is like, as you get older, I don't think the waves of issues and emotions and, and anxieties get any worse if, you know, or, or better. I feel like our foundation gets better. It's like the metaphor would be you're in the ocean and the waves are still going to be the same storms that you dealt with when you were a kid, but you're just a much more robust vessel. It's like, you know, you're, 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 you're a, you're a a destroyer versus a rowboat. You know, you're not going to get tossed around and, and submerged, you're, you're going to weather the storm better, but, but the emotions and everything that you're dealing with, it's still the same intensity. It's still the same stuff. And once you've been through enough of these things, you're just like, oh, it's another storm. It sucks. Right. But you know what? It's not going to kill me. And I think that's, if there's anything about growing older in life, it's just like, you look at things like, okay, it's not going to kill me. Like this pandemic, it's like it, you know, if I stay in at least, hopefully it's not going to kill me. Um, well, like you said, it's a, there's always a storm to weather, but I think that as you journey, your as the metaphor is your boat gets better, but also you discover you're not a boat alone on the ocean. You find your community, yeah. you find your people, and it's not that the problems go away, but you learn how to deal with them better, and you discover there are people who also are there for you. And I think that's just really, you know, it's it's just part of of the growth. Um, well, chosen family is another very queer. Thing. And I mean, and certainly straight people have it too, but um, so many of us, uh, even those of us with good relationships with our families, um, find our chosen families because it's, you know, there's, there's I think, an, a shared experience. There's terminology and, and language and kind of an open attitude that gays have that we all know because we've been through at least a few things together. Like, you know, like all of us, I think have been at least through a few things, you know, that, that we can like kind of point to. And, and I, I find that to be really, really, really wonderful and lovely. I wish, I mean, honestly, when I was coming out, one of the biggest, uh, and, and this was, uh, I came out when I was, I think 20, that would have been 1992 and all you can do the math from there, but it's like, um, (laughs) You know, at the time, this was before the triple cocktail. HIV was still a death sentence, but I was too young to have been really front and center on the first wave of AIDS deaths. So I didn't know really anybody. I knew a few people as it went on uh, who passed away from it. But I didn't, I mean, you know, the people that I was dealing with in the gay community when I came out in the early 90s, they, they were older and they all had people that died. 
And they all, like, you know, we were coming out of this thing. You know, we were terrified all the time. We were told to wrap ourselves in latex if we wanted to do anything with anybody. And, you know, it was a very specific time in the gay community. Um, and we didn't have the mentors, really, that I think younger gays do now, which I'm, you know, on one hand, happy to be, and on the other hand, you know, a little bit jealous of, because, you know, I don't remember, you know, my early 20s, any of us, any of the people my age, uh, really hanging or dealing with guys in their late 40s or early 50s or 60s, because A, most of them were dead, um, or at least half, and B, the other half were too traumatized and busy doing stuff and saving everybody with act up and stuff uh or just living their lives to deal with us you know little newbies so i mean i think right now it's a very interesting time in the gay community because for the first time ever gay men out gay men are defining what it is to become middle-aged and to to and i think in 10 years or so retire um there's never been a generation of gay men who were out and did that before because when we came out when I came out in the 90s it was like all about youth and and you know Bellamy models and stuff and go go <laughs> boys and they were, everybody was hairless you know it was the anti 70s because they think there was a re- wholesale rejection of that whole culture because of AIDS um and it was all youth oriented and everybody was worried about turning 30 Jesus um <laughs> You know, and now it's it's. I feel like the gay community, hopefully knocking on wood right now, knock knock knock, is coming into its own as a productive, non-traumatized society. And I feel like we, more than almost any other community, can help move everybody forward because we are the ones who've been through what we've been through. We are the ones who sometimes aren't scared to face things. You know, to face. The challenges we have, you know, the environment certainly is going to be the one after we're out of quarantine for this pandemic. Certainly, we're going to have to look at, you know, the environment as being the number one issue. Yeah, well, so many insightful comments. I mean, so many avenues that I would love to. Yeah, I feel like I'm I'm going I'm all over the place today. I apologize. It's no weird time. (laughs) I think this is this is really good. And, you know, one of the things that we do on the show is we we like to preserve and discuss queer history. And This is very important because I think that there is a whole generation of uh, queer people who who don't know that for so many of us, we stand on the shoulders of a generation that's just not there. And so we had to to effectively rebuild a culture that we didn't fully know because we were all coming from places that didn't fully know us. So it's like, how do you how do you connect with a community that that was devastated in such a way, coming from a small town that doesn't necessarily want to or want to or uh, have any background in helping you understand how you are, it was it was tumultuous. But like uh, you know, it was it's it's been a journey, and I think this is very important, and uh, it speaks very much to your your coming out process and your journey as a gay man, and I think that is part of the thing that we do talk about here on the show. So I thank you for sharing that. Um, and with that in mind, we've talked uh, quite a bit about uh, your journey uh, and your queer identity. So let's go back to your origins, though, as an artist. Were you always interested in film? Was that, I mean, in terms of like beyond just engaged as a fan, at what point did you know this is this is it? This is what I want to do. I, I feel like a bit of a freak, but I'll tell you the truth. I never didn't know. 
um, I was always obsessed with movies. I remember when I was seven, my mom took me to The Black Hole, the Disney movie in 1979. And it, I don't know if a lot, maybe a lot of people haven't seen this movie, but it was Disney's answer to Star Wars. It was the biggest budget in Disney history. Um, it was not a successful movie. I think it broke even. Um, so it wasn't a colossal bomb, but it was a very, it's a very, very confused movie. Um, I love it. I've seen it so many times. Um, but it's a very dark movie too. And it was the first time I had seen a major character get brutally murdered on screen <laughs> and there's no blood. It's a PG movie, but it's horrifying. It's absolutely hard because you see him get like chopped up by this robot, Anthony Perkins. It's not really a spoiler. It's a 40 year old movie. Um, you know, and it's on Disney Plus. If anyone wants to pick, you know, check it out. It's ninety minutes. It's on Disney Plus. It's a it's a really interesting, not completely successful, but really interesting movie with a really 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 horrifying scene in the middle. Like right in the middle is one of the most horrifying scenes I've ever seen, and that's the Anthony. It culminates in the Anthony Perkins getting killed moment. Um, I used to read Leonard Maltin's book. Like that, t- you know the big Leonard Maltin book, the TV. Oh yeah, it was like, like it was a Bible. Yeah, wait, hold on, I have the last one, and it's like this. It was the 2015 movie guide, and it was the last time they did this, and and uh, I missed it because I would get it every year just to see what he would give certain movies. Now, because this is a horror podcast, I have to I have to chime in that Leonard did not like horror movies. It no. did not seem to like horror movies. I you know. But I read it so many times that I memorized, I memorized the reviews, I memorized the years, I memorized the, the cast, I memorized, like, the directors. Um, I was obsessed, and I couldn't even figure out why, but, I mean, I, you know, it took me a while, to, I think, to, in my teenage years, to unlearn, like, you know, the, the Brood got no stars. Like, why would I watch a movie that got no stars? It's like, you know, I don't know how you can, like, rate The Brood like you would curtains which is a movie that i kind of appreciate but it's a terrible terrible movie we have to be honest there's one really fantastic scene in the middle and it's not a good movie uh but the brood is a fantastic movie and it's like and it just grabs a hold of you and never lets go or alien i think he gave alien two and a half stars and it's just like if you're giving that two and a half stars i don't even know what to talk to you about it's like this is you're you're you know or the john carpenter's the thing you know like you know, like every other critic of the time gave it, I think he gave it like one and a half stars. And it's just like, dude, I don't know what you're looking for in cinema, but this is not what I consider valuable in cinema. Whatever you think is valuable in cinema is not what I'm considering valuable in cinema because you're, you're missing the boat on a lot of these movies. And, um, you know, yeah, it was just all movies for me. Uh, I must've been impossible to deal with, but it's, you know, I was obsessed with movies. I worked at video stores. Um, and I watched all these movies on Betamax and VHS. And uh, I think late in my high school, whatever, my, my stepfather got a, uh, a Laserdisc player. And I was so excited to see some of these movies that were shot in Cinemascope that I had never seen in Cinemascope in Cinemascope. Like Jaws, I remember seeing that letterbox for the first time because Spielberg put so much at one end or the other. It's like, remember the bigger boat shot? It's like one shot. He like backs in and it's like, you know, Robert Shaw's framed right and he goes in frame left. He goes, you're going to need a bigger boat. And he, I remember seeing that on VHS. And it was literally like, the, I think they cut it up into three shots. It was like on Robert Shaw, 
And then Roy Scheider like literally crossed the frame. Then it cuts to the left side of the frame with Roy Scheider saying, <laughs> you're going to need a bigger boat. Then it cuts back to an out of focus Robert Shaw getting up on the right side of the screen. And I had no idea that was one shot until I saw the Laserdisc. And, and so I avidly consumed the Laserdiscs of that, of Alien. I'm trying to think of what other like wide – well, Die Hard. I love Die Hard. Although I saw it recently and it it – it bummed me out a little bit because I I don't think I ever picked up how much of a Republican movie that is. Um, it's like every, everybody in that movie, it's like all like the police, the FBI, everybody's like an idiot except for this one lone dude who doesn't play by the rules. And I guess it's very Dirty Harry. And it's still a great, great movie, but it's kind of the antithesis of like Speed, the Keanu Reeves movie where everybody is like, you know, the police are on it and everyone's on it. And, you know, I guess that's the Democratic version. I always say that Die Hard and Eyes Wide Shut have the same logline because it's about uh, a couple in a failing marriage who go to a Christmas party to try and put it back together when things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and it, like, not no, right? Like, that's exactly what they're That's both fantastic. That is fantastic. I was, I was, I was like, you said Eyes Wide Shut and Die Hard. I'm like, okay, where are you going to go with this? Because I have absolutely no idea, but that that does work. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, I was all about movies, and then uh, much to the chagrin of both of my parents, um, I wanted to go to film school. I was lucky enough to get into NYU, and I went to NYU, but unfortunately when I was there, I didn't have the money to make a movie of my own, which is really you know kind of what you're supposed to do if you want to be a director. So I learned the producing track. I didn't even I didn't even do the editing track. If I think if like I went back, I you know in time I probably would have done that because editing. I came to editing a bit later, um, and I just love editorial. It's, I think it's my favorite part of the process. Uh, even as a director, um, you know, working with an editor, which is ideal, doesn't happen every time, but it's ideal when it does. Um, it's it's because I feel like it's it's particular to cinema. It's it's its own craft it's its own art and i just uh i just love editorial so much anyway but that's that's kind of a history it, it was always in i never had a choice i i was i was actually talking about this with my boyfriend recently i you know the choice for me was do i do this or do i do something else that was it it's right. like and the something else would have been whatever insert whatever like you know lawyer doctor blah 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 game programmer you know tightrope walker i don't know it would have been anything but but it was either go all in and do movies uh or just figure out something else and i just for whatever it's worth i had at least the wherewithal when i was a teenager to say like you know what i'm gonna try this and uh and that was my only choice my only choice was doing the thing that was like so important to me that it was just screaming in my head every day and now this would be a, a natural point to then go through the timeline. You know, you go to film school. At some point, you do eventually make your first feature. It would make sense to talk about that here. But because you were talking about how this all came from you sort of worshipping at the altar of cinema and being obsessed with these movies, I would like to kind of jump ahead a little bit, do a little nonlinear move, because I'm assuming it was around this time that you discovered The Exorcist too, when you were watching movies as a teenager or a kid or... When did when did this obsession begin? I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> um, when did the obsession be? Okay, so I remember being in high school or m middle school. It might have been middle school when me and my friend Philip uh, were at his house alone. I, I must have been like 
13 or 14, um, maybe 12. I don't know. And we watched The Exorcist, but it was the TV version because we taped it off a of TV. And it was still damn scary. I remember it vividly. I remember because they had also these outro cards with the Charlie's Angels music over them. Do you? I don't know if anybody else experienced this, but it's like I remember the priest coming in to see the Defiled Mary, which they reshot, right? They did a different angle, and I thought it was, but it, but it went out on this title card. It went like that whole the Charlie's Angels thing, and I was like, they're recutting the movie. It's like, you know, but there was there was a lot of work done on The Exorcist for the TV version. Um, uh, but I remember seeing that, and it was hailing outside, which was, which was not a common occurrence in um, in uh, eastern Pennsylvania. But it, it happens, uh, and it was just very creepy, and we were all both freaked out. And it was, I think, a few years later, I rented the VHS of The Exorcist because I just never seen it. I was like, I have to see it, and I liked the film very much. Um, it didn't really scare me, believe it or not, but I liked it very much. And then I was like. Okay, I should probably see Exorcist 2 just to say I saw it. And I was aware of the reviews. I was aware that it was like called the second worst movie ever by that Golden Turkey book. Um, Leonard Malton himself gave a one and a half star review. And if I, this is literally from memory. I think he said something like special effects are the only virtue in this turkey about blah, 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 or whatever he said. Um, which And one and a half stars was kind compared to everybody else. So... Okay, so I rented it, and I watched it, and I didn't hate it. Um, I was like, okay, well, that's different. And as, as it, you know, people know, there, there's a history to this film. But basically, the version that was available up until the 90s was a recut version. See, this movie had come out in 1977, and it had been met with such hatred. There's no other word for it. It's, it's disappointment and hatred that Warner Brothers and John Borman, the director, recut the movie starting while it was in wide release. First, they changed the ending. Then he rearranged and cut up and changed a lot of the movie. Um, he didn't reshoot anything. He added a couple of shots of, of, of blood. Uh, the cab driver at the end, like you show him being impaled on a steering wheel. And um, I think there's one other brief moment where... Richard Burton yells at the Cardinal. That's not in the other version. And he added a prologue and, and stuff, but mo but it was 16 minutes shorter than the theatrical version that had originally come out. Um, and that was the only version that was available. And, and, and basically this recut was done to make it more like a horror movie. Because the one thing about Exorcist 2, if you've ever seen, especially if you've ever seen the version that was the original version, this is not really a horror movie. And, and to, to make a movie that is a sequel to what was then the third highest grossing movie ever, and the highest grossing movie in Warner Brothers history. And an, like a legend of horror. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. And it won a couple. And then to make a sequel that's not even really a horror movie. It's like it's either incredibly arrogant. And I think Borman actually ha has said that he felt he was arrogant in doing this. Um, but it's also insanely gutsy. Like the, the people who made this film... They made the film they wanted to make. Right. I mean, the one thing about Exorcist 2 um, is that it's a deeply, believe it or not, it's a deeply serious movie about subjects that meant a great deal to the people that made them. 
and it was about spiritual awakening and it was about um it, it had a very strong feminist uh 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 bent um unlike the first one which you know was accused of misogyny and i think at least some of that is a little bit warranted um it's just it's it, they swung for the fences with this one and they missed entirely and even borman uh who you know i had the very good fortune to interview for this documentary um admits that it doesn't entirely work they did not get the movie that he was shooting for that said everything in that initial initial version in that first version was intended um you know it's not like you know you think about bad movies this is not plan nine from outer space this is not the room this is not an incompetent movie this is an incredibly intentional movie but it doesn't work in a very profound and very obvious way and it's trying to be very serious and it comes off as silly sometimes but then there are parts of it that i feel work fantastic like if somehow this was not the sequel to the exorcist and it was just a movie with these people in it i think that there are scenes in this movie that would would you know be regarded as like absolutely fantastic and and be lauded by a lot of film people um so at any rate like you know i watched that truncated version and it wasn't until the mid 90s when warner brothers released on vhs the original director's cut which is i I forget how many it's like 117 minutes or something versus like 100 whatever it was two or one the other one and that was a revelation seeing that original cut because it really i mean it's still has problems it still doesn't entirely work but it's very consistent it is its own movie it, it's it's very much its own thing and and it's not trying to be a horror movie but it's trying to do this very whacked out um story about spiritual awakening and 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 it and it doesn't work but my god the stuff that they tried and the stuff that they did is just it's awesome any filmmaker watching that movie and like knowing the history it's just i'm in awe that they they not only tried it but that they pulled off as much as they pulled off and they weren't stopped for a number of reasons that i then you know kind of investigated like okay so why didn't anybody step in and say this you know what are you doing this isn't a horror movie and it's like there's a lot of reasons why um that were happening at warner brothers at the time uh, in a way, Borman was extremely fortunate because he had he had basically had full reign to do whatever he wanted with the biggest budget in Warner Brothers history. Um, and it wasn't until the thing came out that anybody had to deal with the fact that it just didn't work. And it especially didn't work for any audience that thought they were going to be scared. Um, so I, I grew, you know, going back to it, I grew into loving this movie, oh gosh, well, certainly by my 30th birthday, my, on my 30th birthday, I screened it for everybody. Right. I, there was only a VHS. There was no other, there was no DVD at the time. And I literally rented, my friend uh, Carson had a, was renting a gigantic, um, uh, uh, it wasn't an apartment. It was like a mini house down in Soho. Um, and it used to be a, it was, it was, it was like a block south of the film forum. Um, uh, wherever the, so it's not technically Soho or is it? It's right around. At any rate, um, there was a huge wall because it was it used to be a schoolhouse. So there's this gigantic wall, and we rented a projector and we projected the VHS of this movie 
for my friends who I at least had the foresight to get very drunk before this movie started. Sure. So, like, the, the drinks, we had these things called Pazuzu Teenies, which were this incredibly potent drink, which we came up with, which were, I would say, like, two parts vodka, one part apple pucker, and then a dash of fresh cherry juice. So it was all, like, it was extremely, <laughs> extremely alcoholic. It was basically vodka. And you were drinking these things, and thank God everybody was really, really, really happy by the time this went on. Um, uh, but everybody, you know, watched it and, uh, you know, they were into it. A, a couple of people were like, oh, my God, what the hell were you <laughs> – what the hell did you do showing us this movie? You know, but, um, yeah, I mean, I was fully uh, – I was fully invested back – even back then. And uh, I've always loved the story. I've always loved – because to me it's – it's a shining example of what happens when filmmakers say, I don't give a fuck. I'm doing this movie. Right. This is important to me. I'm doing this movie. And, and you know, Borman got away with it. And I, I think a lot of horror fans were very resentful and still are. Very, I mean, you know, Mark Kermode, the uh, critic for The Guardian, um, The Exorcist is his favorite movie in the world. And he has said, um, and I'm dying to interview him for the doc, he has said that... Um, he has rated all of Borman's subsequent work lower because he hates him so much for Exorcist Two: The Heretic, which he considers like kind of a heresy in and of itself uh, toward the first film. Because I mean, it does the story does challenge and somewhat undermine the story of the first film. You know, it's kind of like you know, yeah, you, there was an exorcist in Georgetown, but you know what? They happen, and that was like the first scene. They like yeah, exorcisms they happen, and it's just kind of like, well, uh, wait, hold on. I thought the exor- like exorcisms were horrifying and they're demons. Like, yeah, there's one in Rio. There's one over here. You know, priests just um, hop around the world doing exorcisms. It's no big deal. But isn't that, in a way, kind of like the most rock and roll badass way to handle the exorcist? Because oh, my God, it's punk rock. It's so punk rock. This movie is so punk rock in its own weird way. Well, because when you think about it, too, it's like the idea of a, a film about the devil and uh, the devil versus God and and then to follow it up with something that fans consider heresy. Yeah. Well, well yeah. Literally. Doesn't that feel feel like on theme? That seems like it should be exactly what happens. Well, we the, should you know, build but, up our false idols, you know? Well, no, I agree. But audiences really don't like it when they feel they're not getting what they want. No, I, I mean, totally understand. And, and, that's, and that's really, I mean... In a way, it was almost an impossible feat to do a sequel to The Exorcist because... I mean, one of the things that we go over in the film is, like, the first director that was uh, offered this was Stanley Kubrick. And Stanley Kubrick turned it down and told John Borman, because they were friends, they're on the phone, and Stanley Kubrick said, only do this if you're going to out-vomit the original. That is literally the only way you can do a sequel to The Exorcist. Borman went way on the other way, and... Um, you know, God bless him for it. And, you know, but he does admit, like, and I have him on camera saying this, like, that Kubrick was right. Like, the only way you do a sequel to a movie that people regarded for shock value is to give more shock value. And you and I can both talk about how the movie's not really, that's not, in my heart, what I think of when I think of The Exorcist. No, I don't either. Because it, it has a very strong script. It has extraordinary performances. The technicals behind it, in this, especially in the sound department, Owen Roisman's cinematography, uh, the edit, God, the editing is so good. 
um, and, and you know, or and, and the music, uh, all the music choices, um, fantastic, utterly legendary, amazing choices. Uh, but in 1973, a lot of people saw it as the movie where the girl's head spins around and has green vomit because this was the area era where that wasn't seen. You didn't have movies that did this stuff. Um, you know, it was only three years before this movie came out that a major studio movie had the word fuck in it. And that was MASH. That was 20th Century Fox MASH. That was the first time that ever happened in a studio movie. So that was only three years before The Exorcist. So, you know, as good as that film is and remains, um, at the time, audiences were expecting a schlock fest from the sequel. Right. And Borman absolutely refused, like utterly refused to give them that. And and he paid the price. I would like to believe the car alarm that we heard a few minutes ago was uh, Pazuzu. Yeah. That voicing. was outside. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. I, I think I think that's Pazuzu voicing his support of your of your stance on this on this film. I'm so, very I'm very superstitious. I don't like like I I'm yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to attract the. I don't want to attract Pazuzu. I, you know, it's like no. I got I got enough problems. You'll you'll make a theme drink in his name. But, uh, yes, exactly. Uh, so yeah, so you screen this at your thirtieth birthday. You've always been. I mean, I've been to your home. I've seen your posters and things for this. But yeah. When did you When did you decide to make the the documentary? Oh, um, well, this was interesting. Um, I and it goes back to my feature. Uh, I made a feature. Uh, it started its festival run in two thousand nine and it had a theatrical release in two thousand ten, and it's called Pornography: A Thriller. And I'm very, very, very proud of this film. Um, it it did uh, it did well on the festival grounds, it, the rounds. It did okay on video. Um, it basically came out right when the world economy imploded, so it sold, you know, from what I'm told, probably a fraction of what it would have a year before or two years after. And this was before VOD either. I mean, it, it really people. There was, there's just like a two-year period where virtually every movie that came out that was on festival circuit, no matter how well it did, kind of didn't do as well as it should have. So even though it had a $200,000 budget, it didn't quite make it back, um, right. which is which is a huge bummer because I really wanted to, you know, and it did and it did really, really well. It was at a lot of festivals and it got a few awards and it was really cool. Um, but it's, I really wanted to take whatever money that happened from that and like start the next one, you know, and, and kind of keep it rolling. And that was the whole point. But, you know, because it did not, you know, recoup, um, I just had to go back to, you know, kind of money work, which is which is all fine. I mean, I have nothing against it. But um, and and so when I was thinking of like, I you know, a few years ago, I was like, I would say like three years ago at this point, I was like, okay, what movie do I want to do? Because like now like things are getting better. And, and, you know, I'd had a couple of projects out there that didn't quite, you know, happen, which was a bummer. Of course I edited 54. I think you mentioned that in the, in the open. I'm very proud of my work in that. It's not a horror movie, but um, it was, it, that was a six month project, you know, basically right. that 54 is a movie you know, just as a sidebar. 54 is a movie with Ryan Phillippe and Salma Hayek and Mike Myers and Nev Campbell. And it came out with by Miramax in 1998 and the writer-director, Mark Christopher, who's a mutual friend of me and, and a few other people, um, finally, now that, when Harvey and Bob Weinstein left, uh, had the opportunity to, to complete the cut that he never was allowed to. Because basically, Harvey, like, before he was done cutting, uh, had him booted from the edit room, and then Harvey took over, and he cut 
from this rough cut, which I saw, uh, over 44 minutes of footage, basically put put the story through a Cuisinart, put voiceover all over it, and then reshot like 25 minutes of stuff that didn't really work very well, including this epilogue that's supposed to happen four years later where everyone's in a kind of a problematic wig. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and that was the version of 54 that came out and basically, you know, Mark for... I think at that point, 16 or 17 years have been saying, you know, the movie I shot was so much better. And so finally, like, you know, he got the go ahead by Miramax's new owners to do that. And, and basically I had to recut the whole movie from dailies and from the, the cut that he had and from sections of the, the theatrical cut. And it was a, it was a very technical uh, and, and, and time consuming, uh, but extremely satisfying uh, experience to kind of like go that deep on a movie. And honestly, if that movie had come out in 98, it would have been a, a landmark of LGBT cinema because all of the stuff where Ryan Philippi was bisexual, which is very, very, very out there in Mark's cut and very specific, um, was taken out. Like there was all this drug use that was taken out and, and it's just, the director's cut is so much a better movie and so different that it's just, I'm very proud of the work on that, but that, but you know, I'm sorry, you were going to ask a question about that or like, you know, yeah, it's it was. kind of a weird just, offshoot, but you know, that's... I mean, that, that's where, that's how we do here. Uh, <laughs> what is it like to edit a film that you've already seen? Like, I mean, because 54 did have a cultural kind of like mm-hmm. awareness when it came out. I mean, yeah. and, and then to revisit a movie 17 years later and cut it from ground up, that's got to be a very well, different experience from editing a movie that just came out of, of shooting. It was extreme. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, there were, there were. Oh God! I mean, I could talk about this for a while, but I mean, basically, there were there were sections of the movie where where like problems had already been solved that I didn't need to solve, like the open of the movie, which uh, even like in both cuts, I think starts with uh, voiceover, um, uh, and that was an editorial save because the way that Mark had scripted it was a couple of scenes uh, where where Ryan's characters in New Jersey trying to pick up girls. And it just, it kind of doesn't totally work. I mean, I've seen the footage. It just, and I think Mark understood that too. And I think that was why that, that was done. So, you know, so there were certain problems that, that didn't like, you know, stuff that Mark shot that didn't really work or didn't really forward the plot that had already been excised from like all of the versions, including the rough cut. So I didn't need to make those decisions again because, you know, Mark was happy with it. And and certainly I looked at the footage and I was like, yeah, I, I agree. I think this is the way to go. Um, but the, the the director's cut of fifty four was so, I mean the plot is different. It's so different. It's not. It's not even like the first third of it is similar, and then the next two thirds of it. I mean, if you've seen the theatrical version, it's like all I can tell you what's not in there. There's no disco lesson scene. There are no FBI agents except for the raid at the very end. There's no epilogue. Um, I mean, it's there's a whole plot in there which is basically a love triangle between Ryan Phillippe, Breckenmeyer, and Salma Hayek. That is basically the core of uh, the the um, the director's cut. That's that's basically absent from the uh, theatrical cut. I mean, I don't I don't think even in the theatrical cut, Ryan Phillippe and Salma Hayek go to bed together. Um, I think he does because there's another cut. There's an international cut, which which I think they put that scene back in. Um, but it, I don't know. It's it, it was a mess. And but but I I felt like. That whole process, I mean, first of all, I'm a tech nerd, especially a cinema tech nerd, so that really appealed to me. I loved, like, you know, talking with the post-production supervisor, whose name was Nancy Valley and is amazing. 
uh, you know, all of the stuff about rescanning these original negatives and how they would cut together with this other stuff and how it all like kind of would work and how we're mastering it and all that, all that technical stuff. I love that's really cool. Um, and, and basically just, I, I feel like we were just like saving this movie from the dead. This movie would never have been, it's a good movie. It's a genuinely good movie. And it literally never would have been seen had we not just taken six months and like, put it together the way it should have been put together in 1997 and i just feel like it's kind of a you know my jewish friends call it a mitzvah it's like it felt like this was a good deed this was like something healing cinema that we all did um you know not to sound too self-important or or that you know (laughs) or for that movie but it's like it, it it deserved better than what it got and i'm glad that i was a part of the thing that helped it emerge um, well, it sounds like you really helped bring a lot of the queerness back to the movie, too, that had been cut out. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was a part of it. I can't take credit because Mark, that was one of Mark's big things. He was just like, right. you know, we're putting all the gay stuff back. I'm like, awesome. That was about Perfect. the conversation. Yeah. It was like, yeah, like, we'll do it all. Like, you know, you ever want to see Ryan Phillip be making out with a dude? Check out 54, the director's cut. <laughs> it's really, it's a good scene. Um, so... On that journey, you 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 do the director's cut uh, from pornography to fifty four year editing, and you said mm-hmm. this is leading up to you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, it came to this point where I was trying to figure out because you know one of the reasons, one of the ways I was able to do pornography a thriller was because credit was so cheap at the time, and I had great credit, um, and I had saved up money from from other work I'd done, commercials and promos and sizzles and stuff, which is you know, a good chunk of my income. Um, every, every creative I know has a, <laughs> has a side gig in marketing of some kind, uh, except for the very lucky ones. Um, and you know, so at that point, um, credit was not cheap, uh, or, or as easily accessible as it was in, you know, 2007, 2008, right up until the crisis. Um, so it's like, okay, if I make a feature, and I had a couple of features that I really, really wanted to do, but neither of the scripts that I really wanted to do could be made for under a million bucks. And it bummed me out uh, because, like, you know, it wasn't even a question of getting, you know, 500000 or even, you know, two fifty. It's like, you know, we're talking about, like, can we make a movie for, like, fifty grand? You know, can you do a Francis Ha? Can you do something cool and, and very cheap and innovative? And I couldn't come up with a good idea um, – and then my friend, uh, our friend, both of our friends, Jeffrey Schwartz, and I were talking. Jeffrey is a really fantastic, extremely knowledgeable, genius-level documentary film director. He's done movies like I Am Divine and Tab Hunter Confidential, The Fabulous Alan Carr, Vito, uh, the Jack Wrangler movie. Um, I'm yeah, Jeffrey's right. been on the show before. So after yeah. you're done, listeners, go check out that episode. He's amazing, and he's a oh, dear, dear, sweet friend. He's just a fantastic guy. Um, he had been on me to do a documentary on Exorcist 2. And I was kind of like, I've never done a documentary. I don't know. Now, I have recut a documentary. There was a documentary about Barbershop that I recut uh, a, a while ago. I was doing a, a trailer for this director, and he basically invited me to help him, you know, recut the the documentary itself. And that was a wonderful experience. It's called American Harmony. I don't even know where it's available, but it, it was, it ended up being a really good movie, a little movie. I, I want to say it was like maybe 10 years ago. Um, so I had some experience with doc, but I never directed a doc. I, 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 you know, and, and I never thought of myself really as a, you know, a documentary filmmaker. Like when I think of that, I think of, you know, like 
Matt Turnow or Barbara Koppel or Jeffrey or, you know, uh, any Alex Gibney, any of these like amazing Errol Morris, any of these amazing people who can like make, tell these stories in this incredibly cool cinematic way. Um, and what happened was Jeffrey said, if I can get you contact with Borman, would you consider doing this documentary? And I was just like, I don't know. How would you get contact with Borman? Um, and what happened was there was a, a person that he Jeffrey was interviewing for a documentary he was making who had written a book on Borman. Jeffrey gave me his uh, contact info. I wrote to him and he got in touch with me and then got in touch with Borman. And then it took – and that was – Believe me, I don't think you could have talked to me that day when Borman wrote me back. I just lost my shit. Like, it was like, <laughs> oh, my God, John Borman's writing me an email. And, you know, basically it was a few months of communication with Borman and Skyping with him and calling him. And basically what what I think it was was he wanted to know if I really loved this movie or if I was going to make fun of him or it. And this is not – uh, an unfounded worry because right. every everyone has made fun of this movie. It's a very easy movie to make fun of in points. Um, and I basically told him my pitch, which was just basically like, look, artists need to take risks. You are an artist. Like you have an amazing uh, body of work. I mean, you, you have, you know, he has made just in case anybody doesn't know Borman's pornography, uh, pornography, filmography. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, basically the highlights are Point Blank with Lee Marvin, Stone Cold Classic, Deliverance, Stone Cold Classic, Zardoz, really crazy, interesting sci-fi movie. Uh, I love Zardoz. Zardoz is so good, but, you know, it's Borman said it himself. It's like he it, it went from failure to cult classic without ever having gone through success. Um, so people love it, but you know, I think more of a shock to him than anybody, uh, Excalibur, which rewrote a genre of movie making Emerald forest, which is easily one of the most jaw dropping movies to watch when, especially when you think of that, that they shot it in the Amazon, um, hope and glory, uh, classic, the general with Brendan Gleeson, which you can't even find anymore, which is unbelievably great. Um, and it was, it was you know, kind of on a short list for best picture that year, but it didn't quite get the awards that it should have. Um, and even his last one, Queen and Country, uh, which was a follow-up to Hope and Glory, which was nominated for best picture in 1987, which is a fantastic little movie. Um, and I'm forgetting some of the other ones that are like kind of just pretty good, like The Taylor of Panama, um, or, you know, if you're, if you're into it, Where the Heart Is, which is a very weird little movie, but it's really kind of sweet. Um, so he's genuinely like one of the greatest filmmakers ever. I mean, like really like he's in that a league with like, you know, hundred, 150 other directors, maybe even just a hundred, you know, 75 directors. Um, so, you know, I'm talking to him, which is insane. And he find, and I'm finally like, well, if I could, you know, get a crew together, you know, would you, would you sit and get interviewed f- with me for this? And he finally says, yes. And I, I went to a good friend um, who, you know, basically invested a little bit of money um, and it was enough to get a crew in Ireland. And I flew to Ireland and it was the uh, it was this is February 2018. Um, I get there and immediately they're saying there's going to be the blizzard of the century the next day. I'm like, of course there is. 
because nothing can be easy. And and Borman lives um, uh, in County Wicklow, which is basically an hour south of Dublin. And if you've seen Zardoz or Excalibur, those forests is basically right next door to him. He lives right next door to this gigantic park uh, with the most amazing green gorgeousness, Irish gorgeousness you've ever seen. And so if it blizzards, there's absolutely no way I'm getting to him. Luckily, um, it, 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 the blizzard got pushed like six hours. So it was snowing while we were shooting, but it wasn't, we, we got through a day and we, right. we shot him for the day. And basically, you know, that was the beginning of this whole journey. Like once I had John Borman talking about this film and John Borman had not seen this film in 40 years. Um, before I came, I was like, would you like to see it again? Like, and I, I sent him a, a PAL Blu-ray of Exorcist 2 because he literally hadn't, you know, it was so painful for him. You know, he had not talked about this film almost ever right? since it came out because it, it you, you cannot talk about this movie without talking about how, how horribly it was received. It's it's almost unprecedented. They threw things at the screen. <laughs> like there were riots. There were riots for a movie. That's that's it's it's unbelievable. I can say this. It was so bad that theater owners were complaining to Warner Brothers, and that's why they changed the ending. While the movie was in wide release across the country, they were sending out new final reels with J- Richard Burton dying instead of living because audiences hated it so much because they were destroying the theaters that this was showing in. They were throwing things at their screens. It was such, it, you just can't imagine this kind of calamity. This wouldn't happen. Well, I mean, with the internet, we, everyone would know about it in two seconds. But, you know, Exorcist 2, I mean, it, it hit that weekend. Like, literally, it was one of the most eagerly anticipated movies ever recorded like they because they have these want to see things like what they would they would they would um poll a bunch of people and say like would you yes definitely yes probably whatever like the want to see on exorcist 2 was just through the roof but it came in second it's opening weekend because the saturday to sunday drop off was so severe that people just stayed i mean it was uh, you know and it nearly destroyed borman's career and it wasn't it, he didn't release another film for four years, um, but luckily for him, that movie was Excalibur, and Excalibur was a huge critical and commercial success, um, and it and and it kind of put him back on top, and he was for for all intents and purposes forgiven, um, for at least you know, a bit, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think what there were two reasons I think he finally agreed to talk to me, which was one was I said I believe. And this is so arrogant of me to say, but I, I wrote it. Uh, I was like, I believe that you couldn't have made Excalibur, the Emerald Forest, and Hope and Glory the way you did had you not gone through the baptism by fire of the heretic. Like, you couldn't have, like, it, it fundamentally changed you as an artist. Right. It was so traumatic. Like, like, not just making the movie, which was hard enough. I mean, the movie took six months to shoot. And he almost died. He was, he was, um, they brought in, because they were doing all these exteriors as, in, uh, uh, exteriors as interiors. Basically, they brought in, like, the sand from the valley, because they were doing these African, like, uh, cliff churches and, and plains exteriors, and they were shooting them in sound stages and Warner Brothers. 
But what they didn't know was the dirt they brought in from the valley had this fungus in it called the San Joaquin Valley Fever. And he and like four or five crew members, but mostly Borman, got so ill. Borman was in the ICU of Cedar sinai and they were taught he, – he almost died. They were talking about replacing him. They had to shut down the entire production for five weeks. I mean this is not shit that happens on normal movies. Right. Um, so it, it's – it just must have been – and he was, you know, he was a very successful. He was on the top of the A list at the time. He was, you know, directing the movie that was the sequel to the third highest grossing movie ever, the highest grossing movie in Warner Brothers history, the highest budget in Warner Brothers history. He was the toast of the town. And for him to have gone through, and it was an exhaustive, crazy shoot where it was just so hard. Six months um, and dealing with talent that was, I, I think, a little less than. Uh, at least one of the actors was a little less than there, a little bit phoning it in uh, <laughs> from from everyone I heard, you know have interviewed. Mr. Burton was was not there for the artistic merit of the project. Um, they're kind of to get paid, and um, and he came out of it with this movie that he very much believed in, and he felt very passionately about it and very good about. It. And then he basically got crucified in in a, an extremely public way. And he took he, – he basically took a couple years off. I mean he was going to, you know, give up filmmaking entirely. Um, and thank goodness he didn't. Thank goodness he, he came back um, with Excalibur. But, I mean, the whole story is just so – like it, it's not just about this movie. It's about a whole era of 70s filmmaking where kind of these auteurs were given the keys and whatever budgets they wanted, basically, more or less. Right. Uh, to make these movies that they believed in. Um, you know, and they, and these movies like would make money. I mean, like, you know, you know, MASH was 1970 was one of the biggest hits of the year. The Graduate, when it came out in the sixties was the biggest hit of its year. 2001 was the biggest hit of its year. I mean, to think that those movies were mainstream, I mean, and hugely mainstream. It's like, you know, so studios just started like, you know, making these movies that they didn't like these, the studio people didn't get. Um, you know, who would greenlight Nashville? Right. Like, who in their right mind? And still, it's like, you know, but this was one of the movies, and there were several from about 1975, ending with Michael Cimino's utterly cat- catastrophic Heaven's Gate, which was, I think, started off the budget was either, de- depending on who you look at, 7 to 12 million, and ended up being somewhere between 38 and 44 million. And it's it's box office failure destroyed a major studio united artists it literally destroyed it it like everybody you know it got bought by mgm everybody at ua was basically sent home it was just and so after that and after movies like new york new york for mgm by martin scorsese 1941 which did actually break even but it was still like exorcist 2 broke even by the same way i mean it was basically pre-sold to theaters Right. Um, so they made, they made a profit or at least they made their money back before it even got released. Um, that practice was called blind bidding and Exorcist 2 and a couple of other movies like Altman's Quintet and Bridge Too Far were movies that basically made that illegal. Like, like legislation came about like saying studios can't have these theaters blind bid on these movies anymore. They have to see them first. And, right. you know, and so Exorcist 2 was one of those movies. But, you know, movies like At Long Last Love by Bogdanovich and, and, uh, you know, you know, Altman had a bunch like Health and Quintet and um, even Popeye, uh, which I think broke even. But I mean, it was 40 million dollars or something crazy. Actually, I think maybe it was 20. 
but it, I mean, it was, it barely broke even. Um, and then by the eighties, like studios weren't giving filmmakers blank checks anymore. Um, right. it, everybody had notes. There were executives everywhere. Everybody wanted more of control over it. And, and Exorcist to the Heretics. So, I mean, this, the, at least the documentary I'm making is not just about this movie and this crazy movie and, and all of the intentions that went into it and the tragedy of that when it didn't work. Um, it's about this entire era of filmmaking and filmmakers that kind of imploded around the same time. And it's also just about filmmaking itself, like the craziness of making a movie. And, and right. Borman puts it best. He talks about, you know, it's about like turning money into light. And people get very, very freaked out about turning money into light because then they have to turn the light back into money and sometimes they can't do it. And I mean, it's a very weird, amazing, ephemeral art form. And yet it's also extremely, because it's so damn expensive, necessarily a business. And so it's it's that tension between those two worlds about how you can make a crazy movie like Exorcist 2 and still make it with a lot of money and potentially try to make it back i mean it's it just resonates with me in a lot of different ways and so that's kind of how it started i interviewed borman and then after that i got you know linda blair and louise fletcher and rospo palenberg who ended up rewriting a lot of the script and other people who were involved in the production and now i'm cutting it together under quarantine (laughs) it's like the ideal time to do it well let me ask you this because we have been talking about how this interest in this film uh, threads its way back to your teenage years, but also we can see the trajectory of you making this documentary weaving itself also through your professional career. You are a filmmaker. You made a film, uh, have made films prior to this, but there is always sort of this kind of relationship that comes back to this. Now you're talking about this movie that was a trial by fire and a lesson for John Borman. But what have you learned about filmmaking since starting this process from studying this this particular journey? That I love it. I re I relearned my love for it because like when I made pornography of thriller, that was extremely that movie was extremely personal to me and it's a very weird movie. I mean, you can attest. I don't think that anybody who went to see it uh, at the festivals quite knew what they were getting into. Um, you know, it's 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 in one extent a reasonably straightforward story about a, a porn star who disappears in the '90s, but then it evolves or 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 devolves depending on what you want to say into a kind of a surreal David Lynchy, David Cronenbergy thing about like, okay, you know, the people who try to find him, like, did this guy ever really disappear? Was this all, you know, kind of conjecture or urban legend? And what does it mean that we're so obsessed with pornography? So it, it kind of, it was a confrontational film. Um, I think a lot of people uh, who were looking for easy answers, especially at the end, were really angry at me and, you know, I, I had my share of really terrible reviews from this, but most of the, I mean, the thing was the, the reviews that were really terrible were basically the, I can't, I don't get it. It's right. like, basically it was like, you know, nobody was dinging me for my filmmaking or like, you know, the visuals or the effect or the fact that like, whenever, you know, you see it with an audience, there's a moment in the middle where everyone loses their minds, which I just love, by the way, <laughs> it was like when that happens, I love seeing it with audiences for that moment in the middle. Um, they were they were they were angry because they were like, well, I don't get it, therefore it means nothing, right. and that and that happened a lot, especially with you know queer critics when it was on the festival circuit. But weirdly, when it came out on DVD and Wolf picked it up um, and released it, uh, and it was on Netflix for like about uh, 
like a year and change. This is, I think, before everyone got Netflix. It was like, you know, I want to say it was like 2011 or something. Um, uh, the reviews that were reviewing the DVD were really positive. And like, oh my God, I've never seen a movie like this before. I've never seen an LGBT movie try this shit before and, 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 and tell this story. Um, so I was really gratified by that. I wish those critics had reviewed it when it was on the festival circuit though. <laughs> like, right. like whoever those guys were, it's just like, yeah, okay. I'm, 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 you know, I'm sorry you didn't get it. I'm sorry. This was not the movie you thought it was going to be. And I think from that, I do resonate a bit with Exorcist too. I don't think that I'm John Borman and I certainly didn't have a <laughs> large budget at all to do anything with, but you know, I will say this for me and my team, we did swing for the fences. I mean, we made a $200,000 LGBT horror movie and we, steadfastly refused to to give easy answers especially at the end i mean it's a really creepy little movie and and i, I you know i haven't seen it all the way through in, in a bit but i saw a clip of it recently because i was i was talking about it with some other uh podcast and i was just like god this is this is genuinely creepy this is you know i'm i'm just really proud of it so what i've learned i mean going back to what you were asking was that the entire process of making a movie, although it's really difficult, and you know there are parts of it that I will bitch about to my dying day, and certainly other filmmakers will bitch about various parts, um, there's still something fundamentally magical about it because basically, you know, writing sucks because you're alone and you're writing, and you know, no matter how good the screenplay is, it's just a screenplay. It's just there. You know, it it doesn't really you have to use so much of your brain to just have it pop off the, the page, even with the best screenplays and production is just like war. And it's like, kind of like you're making the tinker toys, you know, you're chopping the wood and making the tinker toys that you will then put together an editorial. Editorial is a lot more fun as I think I've said, you know, 17 times. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, it's the whole, the whole process. You're basically creating a dream. You're creating an experience that other people will, will experience you know and and also bring their own personal selves to the experience so no movie is ever the same for any person you know it's like everybody brings their own stuff to it no matter how no matter how much you want to look at it with an antiseptic eye you're always going to be you you're always going to bring your own stuff to it um and i think there's magic about that especially with film especially with horror films because you're talking about the primal stuff. You're talking about the stuff that we all as people, if we want to evolve, try to get to, try to deal with, try to bring out into the light. Well, and one thing, you know, as we're wrapping up, I wanted to kind of take back to the beginning, especially since we're talking about pornography, a thriller is way back at the beginning when we were talking about why horror and, and those, those kind of psychological boxes it ticked. One thing that happens a lot when people want to malign horror and studios want to malign horror and critics want to malign horror is they make that comparison to pornography. Horror is like porn for X, Y, you know, Z reasons. But you at the very beginning of this were, were talking about how it, it taps into that primalness in the same way as porn albeit in an artistic way. So I love that you made a movie, pornography, a thriller, literally set within the world of porn, but it's this art house horror movie that is both a gay movie, a thriller, a a neo-noir. It's got these Lynchian abstract elements, sort of like, it felt like a rallying cry in a way of you saying like, okay, yeah, but these things can walk hand in hand and here's why. 
I love that, what you just said. <laughs> I don't think I could have said that better. I, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, like, you know, pornography in and of itself, I mean, it, it works on a level that, that we cannot analyze because we're human beings. And as human beings, if we see pornography that works for us, we will, like, react to it. Uh, either becoming aroused or however your reaction is, regardless of what kind of analysis we put on it with our thinking minds, it leapfrogs over all of it. I think right. horror is similar in that very emotional, very, um, you know, kind of, it's not even right brain or left brain. It's like basically beyond brained. It's like, it's like the, the central brain, the lizard brain. Um, it works on those levels, but by, by sh- like showing you those levels, by you know implementing those levels you can bring it to a conscious place you right. know you can bring it to a place where you can deal with it you know and 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 deal with it in a way where it's somewhat cathartic i mean i i kind of dis, i mean i you know we, <laughs> i was going to say weirdly i don't know if it's weirdly or not weirdly i'm not a very avid pornography uh, consumer of pornography i'm I, you know i i it, when i was writing the film um I researched a lot of how gay pornography, because it was very particular to gay pornography, how gay pornography reflected the culture. Because basically, when it started, it was it it started really in in the seventies um, with Boys in the Sand and you know Wakefield Pool and and all those guys and Joe Gage, and they were in sixteen millimeter and they were extremely arty and artistic, and they weren't like you know the the, the Pornhub you know iPhone videos you see this is not just a mechanical experience they were trying to tell they were trying to show an experience um there was actually one uh i mean i don't know if it was narrative it wasn't really narrative but it was there was one especially called LA plays itself by Fred Halsted and i think MoMA actually has a print of it um but i found it on VHS i don't know if it's in print anywhere anymore um but it's it's disturbing um it's it's basically a, a porn movie with VO uh, voiceover uh, between the guy, the two guys that are going to have sex or ostensibly are having sex while you're watching, but one of them by the end ends up dead, and it's like, am I watching like a serial killer who then like later kills the person off screen? And it's like really creepy, but very effective and 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 erotic as well in a weird way. And, and I'm not you know one who thinks violence is really erotic. Um, and I, I, you know, I mourn the loss of that kind of like, because there was a pre, like in that early pornography, there was an appreciation of cinema itself. Right. And, and one of my characters in pornography who's doing like, there's a writer in the, who's doing a book on pornography, basically saying it, it kind of reflects the gay community. You can tell because how, how the passion kind of went by the wayside just for kind of like, you know. You know, you got the blowjob scene, then you got the the, the penetrate the missionary position, then you got the doggy or whatever. You go down the list of like the positions that you need or whatever, um, and it became very rote. Um, but these early ones and going into the eighties, even like you know, suddenly like there's HIV there, and you know, people started to wear condoms, and before that, you know, suddenly like there were no manly men really, or there were, but it was like it was always much more about like the hairless youth kind of thing. That's when Bellamy and those that whole look that glisten of purity like came about, I think as a reaction to all the death that we were seeing. Um, And now it's a panoply of everything, but it's like, you know, but there was, there was actual cinema in that early pornography. I mean, real cinema. And, 
And that's, I mean, you know, in the same way that I feel like, you know, if you read the reviews of Cronenberg's The Brood when it came out in 79, you wouldn't think that there's real cinema in that. But you watch that movie, there's real cinema in The Brood. There's real cinema in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's real cinema in Night of the Living Dead, which which brought about, you know, so much subconscious stuff when it came out that it was, it was you know, rightly became a landmark. You know, and even The Exorcist, which was, a, you know, in comparison to all this other stuff, a huge budget. Uh, compared to like Night of the Living Dead or The Brood or any of the, like other tiny movies, but it it had so much cinema and cinema knowledge baked into it. Well, I think the art that changes culture always springs from the subversive, whether yeah, you know, the establishment wants to acknowledge it right away or not. Yeah. So, uh, Dave, this has been a really really insightful conversation. We covered a lot of stuff, you know, even uh, you know from from the lessons to be learned from John Borman's journey and how your own journey has been inspired by that, as well as all the other things. Um, and of course, this is a show that is in service to cinema. I have to ask before we go, what have you been watching recently that you like or that inspires you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I actually keep a diary of what I watch. Uh, I find it I find it helpful, or I put it in my calendar. Uh, since the quarantine, I have a I have my boy. My boyfriend is a bit younger than me. He's in his early thirties, and uh, he hasn't seen a lot of movies. <laughs> um, well, compared to me, I don't. You know, I, I don't think that's a fair. That's, that's not a fair metric. Uh, what have I been watching? Um, uh, I, uh, wow. I re I rewatched Clute the other day on Criterion Channel. By the way, I love Criterion Channel. If anybody wants uh, one of the best streaming services in creation, go get Criterion Channel. It is just so great. Uh, I watched Two Weeks in Another Town last night for the first time. That's a Vincente Minnelli movie that was kind of an unofficial follow up, sort of to The Bad and the Beautiful, which, if you haven't seen that, is one of the best movies ever made about making movies. It's with Kirk Douglas. Uh, and Lana Turner, and it is just phenomenal. This movie, last night, two weeks in another town, it was hallucinatory. Um, It's just amazing. Uh, What else have I watched? I've been watching Making the Cut on Amazon. (laughs) I I went to college with one of the competitors on that. Who? Uh, Will Riddle. He and I were in school Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Oh, that's so cool. You know, I knew Sabato. I knew that guy Sabato when I was at NYU because he was dating a guy that I was working on a movie with. Like, he was the director. I was the – I think I was, like, the second AD, and I I edited some of the assembly. Um, So I was like, Sabato Russo, why do I know that name? Why do I know that name? Like, oh, my God, it's that guy! And, you know, that was (laughs) really It used to be six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but now it's six degrees of making the – Yes, exactly. And I finished finished Succession season two. That was cool. What else have I watched? I rewatched Two Frame. Oh, I rewatched Aliens for the first time in years the other day. Craig had never seen it, which is insane. I'm just like, we have to watch Aliens immediately. Like, they're, they're, Truly a masterpiece. It's so, it, you know, I grew up with this movie. I love this movie, but I had, I literally have not seen it probably in like five or six years. I just never, I haven't watched it. And I was just utterly blown away by the artistry in this movie. First of all, I watched the theatrical cut, not the not the director's cut because I just think it's it's just slightly better. I I do like the longer longer cut, but I I don't generally like that whole scene in the beginning with Newton or family. Um I think it's just too long and I'd rather arrive at the planet when Ripley arrives at the planet. Um but I mean god, the 
every shot in that movie, every line, it's it's just everybody is working at such an A plus 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 level. It's just so fantastic. And oh my god, the sound design. If anybody gets off on sound design, the sound design of that movie is just phenomenal. Every sound in that movie is phenomenal. Um, what else have I been watching? What have you been watching? I don't even know. <laughs> it's like I've been watching so many movies. Oh gosh. I mean, I, uh, I also keep, I've been keeping a quarantine diary of movies that I've been watching. Yeah. Uh, if anybody follows my Twitter, which most of my listeners do, uh, I have been unapologetically watching, uh, Ninja Turtle cartoons just because it's like, <laughs> it is, it, it's like literally like my mental turnoff. Like while the world is at chaos, I'm like, I at least have these, uh, four friends from the eighties that I can catch up with. Okay. Wait, but I, it, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I would say, but in terms of actual content, I've been really digging back into the Roger Corman catalog. Oh, uh, that's so cool. And because I find like, I mean, I have, of course, been watching more serious fare. I watched uh, I watched the German horror film uh, Luz, uh, which is queer adjacent. Oh, um, I saw the trailer to that. That looked interesting. I haven't seen it yet, though. Yeah, I've watched that and I've been doing a lot of like some international art house films. But I find that with sort of the existential uh, crush that is the world of quarantine, there's just something about going into the Corman catalog and watching Humanoids from the Deep or, uh, you know, The Wasp Woman. It's comfort or even, food. It's comfort. Yeah, it's great. It, yeah. And I've really, really been enjoying that. And honestly, I've been rediscovering uh, a lot of the Roger Corman films because of that. Speaking of Aliens, of course, you know, after Alien came out, Roger and company, <laughs> they did a whole like slew, like Galaxy of Terror and yes. Forbidden World. And those are all great. Aaron so. Yeah, no, I I have my calendar in front of me, so I could just go down the list. I watched RuPaul's Drag Race because I'm I'm gay, and they take away your card if you don't. Um, <laughs> Scavenger Hunt, the 1979. It's still terrible, but I love it. I don't know why I love it. It's just so bad. It's wonderful. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. I had never seen it before. I'm a huge Jacques Demy fan. It's I have good. to say that. Uh- the Umbrella, Umbrellas of Shoreborg, uh, I have the soundtrack on my iPod. That's right, listeners. I still wow. have one of those. And it's one of my favorite things to listen to on a plane because it's like just kind of c- calming. It just goes. Uh, yeah. 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 The Eyes of Laura Mars, st- still a little bit disappointing, but so fun. I'll tell you what. Since you had talked about the uh, the uh, Pazuzu Tini, I have a... <laughs> I have a I have a cocktail called the Polaroid that I like to make when I watch The Eyes of Laura Mars. Oh my god, I need to know what this is immediately. I'm it's, actually I'm writing this down. I'm literally writing this down. Please tell me. It's vodka, blue uh, curacao, uh-huh. and and seltzer water. And you pour it like the, you would do the vodka first, the blue curacao next, and then the seltzer to the top. So then it layers. So it has that kind of like gradient that a uh-huh. Polaroid does. And you can oh, do like yeah. A, yeah, and you can do like a hint of lime if you want. So here, if anything, ah. beyond like all the all the insight that we had today, Dead for Filth listeners, we give you two horror-themed cocktails. Yes. I'll even make sure that I mention this in the, the episode write-up so people who are looking to get drunk while they're staying oh my God. can do this. Yes, yeah. no, that's so good. But for the Pazuzutini, just remember, it has to be fresh cherry juice. That's always the bitch. We You have to go yeah. to like a specialty um because you don't want that like maraschino cherry juice that's not cool like you need like actual ground up cherries to make that work oh, so th- no grenadine here no we're, we're no curious. grenadine and I'm, I'm, yeah i'm looking at the rest of the stuff i, I rewatched the hudsucker proxy i watched gilda california suite who framed roger rabbit Girl, fincher's girl with the dragon tattoo godfather one and two yeah so i've just been seeing oh happy death day to you i finally watched um that was fun well, I will say um, that for horror fans, Hudsucker Proxy, for, for those of you who are Coen Brothers fans, but also Sam Raimi fans. Yes. 
Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers are old pals. And when Hudsucker Proxy was made, uh, they did a thing where they kind of swapped roles on each other's films. And the Coens wrote a movie that Sam directed and Sam wrote a movie that the Coens directed. And the movie that Sam wrote that the Coens directed is Hudsucker Proxy. And the film that the Coens wrote that Sam directed is a movie called Crime Wave, which Sam made in between <laughs> Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. And Bruce Campbell pops up in both of them. So if you want to like dig into the Raimi-verse, both of those movies are worth checking out. Yeah, they, they are, and and except I'm sure the producers of both those movies were not happy because they both were box office bombs. They did True. not do well at all, um, which is a shame because especially Hudsucker Proxy is one of the more gorgeous movies of that era from a studio perspective. It's, like, so beautiful and so expensive, and that Carter Burwell score is so unbelievably great, and, oh, it pains me that that movie didn't do better. It really does. Well, you know what? Everyone's stuck inside, so you have no excuse not to go check it out. Dave, um, for people who want to keep up with you or like want to want to know like updates on the the Exorcist Two documentary as it comes out, where can people find you? Um, I am I'm everywhere. I'm on Facebook. I uh, am on. I guess the easiest way is Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm just David Kittredge. It's just my name. Uh, K Dave, <laughs> David K I T T R E D G E. Um, and, uh, the movie has a URL, but it's just, it's basically just up there. There's nothing there yet. It's called hereticsmovie.com. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of my, uh, social media presence. Um, and I'm hoping that it, I'm, I was, I was just gonna say, I'm basically hoping for a 2021, uh, premiere. Uh, though, though I have to say, I mean, the quarantine has, uh, put something of a <laughs> question mark around everything, but uh, we're at this point still shooting for 2021. Great. Well, fingers crossed. We'll be keeping our eyes open for it. Uh, before we head off onto the night, any uh, parting thoughts? I just love this conversation. I feel I feel like we 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 went way beyond uh, uh, standard horror, but I feel like that's kind of what standard horror is supposed to do. Yeah. So this was lovely. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming. And thank you for, you know, sharing your insight, your stories. And uh, I appreciate it. So thanks again. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead from Filth. You're as always in Clam and Gore. Good night. Good luck. And stay home. Dead for Filth, the Renegade Edition, is a June Gloom production in association with Sister Hyde. Dead for Filth is created and hosted by Michael Verratti and produced by Drew Phillips.